Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. A couple of quick announcements. One, uh, Easter's coming up very, very soon. We're like eight weeks out from Easter, and we got some incredible things planned, but we need your help. Uh, you'll see on there we got some special components. If you're an experienced dancer, that does not mean at the club. That means you're actually trained as a dancer. Uh, we need your help. You can text the word dance just to that number uh, so we can start setting up some rehearsals, kind of vision cast what we're trying to do with that. That'd be great. Also, uh, we, we talked about during Vision Month on A River Runs Through It, we have a plan to make an impact on the Cobbert County side of the river, way on the other side of the river. And so we're going to have a vision kind of brainstorming dream meeting this next Saturday at the Rock Coffee Shop in downtown Sheffield. Just kind of free coffee, so you come. I'm providing all the coffee. We'll hang out, and we're going to share kind of what it's going to look like. On Good Friday, we plan on doing an evangelism-type service there uh, somewhere in Cobbert County. So we'd love for you to be a part. If you want updates on that, you can text the word Colbert to that same number on the screen at 256-670-2860, especially if you live on that side of the river because we want you to make an impact where you live. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, we're in this series, or part two of this name-calling series, and Toy and I flew down Supposed to have been Thursday, ended up being Friday to Haiti to go to Chapel Haiti, which is our campus. If you don't know, we have a campus in Haiti. We run a school. And we took oversight of the church and the school about a, a little bit over a year ago. And the school had about 20 students, 24 students. And none of the students had books. They didn't have uniforms, and they were not fed. So many of them um, were starving to death. It's very hard to get an education while you're hungry. And so thanks to your support and your giving, we got all those kids sponsored and more. So now there's 74 students in our school all of them have uniforms, books. We have teachers for almost every class, and they all receive a hot meal every single day. We've done medical mission trips there where we're getting them treated. Most of them were malnourished due to lack of food, but also worms. If they did get food, the worms were taking all the nutrients out of their system. And so we've got that treated for the most part. And it was just amazing seeing all this hope and joy and just everything just thriving there in the village thanks to what you're doing. So we're having an impact there in Haiti as well. But getting to Haiti... For Valentine's Day, so you spent Valentine's Day at Waffle House or wherever you take your wife to go to Valentine's Day at. I spent mine with Toya in a third world country. So on Thursday, we're trying to fly out. So we flew from Huntsville to Orlando. We're going to Orlando to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Starts flying, and so I don't watch movies on a plane. I'm trying to keep up what's going on the plane. I'm reading a book, and I have the map of the plane. So it's tracking the flight of the plane, and we get about an hour outside of Haiti. So we're two hours out of Orlando, an hour towards our destination, about to land, and I feel the plane take a large bank turn. I look at the screen, and the little fake airplane on the screen does a little 180. I thought, that's never good. So we asked the flight attendant, hey, what's going on? Why are we making a turn? He says, I don't know. The captain's going to make an announcement. The captain comes over to the thing. Um, yeah, you may have felt that large turn we just made. We have to go back to Orlando, right? So you don't want to hear that. Well, why, sir? Well, we have to go back to Orlando because both lavatories are stopped up, and it could be a major problem. And I was thinking to myself, one, why would we go all the way back to Orlando two hours? We could have landed in an hour in Haiti, and whoever has the problem could go to the bathroom there. Two, I was wondering, who is the guy who stopped up the toilet and called an international catastrophe over international waters? And I, it was not me, just in case you're asking. Like, who is And so we get rejected from our destination. And, and in life, there's many times rejections or things don't go as planned or as you want them to go. In ministry, like as a pastor, it's, it's always a life of rejection. Like, if somebody leaves the church, it's rejection. We first moved here. There's transition to the church. It's rejection. My pastor, it's an honor to have him, which is Dylan's dad. It's no longer Dylan's his son. He's now Dylan's dad, Maury Davis is here with us, so it's always an honor to have him. I promise you, he'll tell you, ministry is a battle of rejection. Life, maybe you were trying out for the basketball team and you're five foot four and you got rejected. Maybe you wanted to be on the cheerleading team in high school and you got rejected. Maybe it was the middle school dance and you walked up to that girl that you had the, the butterflies for, for and she says, 
no, I don't want this dance. Maybe it was for a job you're going for, for an interview, and you got rejected. Rejection is a part of life. And many times you can use rejection as a motivation or as an obstacle to stop trying. There's a term called rejection syndrome that is now documented because now as human beings we're weaker than we've ever been before. And rejection syndrome says this, and it directly affects those with ADHD. It says that people that deal with rejection at a higher level because they face physical pain, actual physical pain when dealing with rejection. Instead of just having a mistake, it's now failure that stops their life. They deal with anxiety and stress and depression and even suicide because of rejection. And they said 99% of people that have ADHD deal with their, uh, rejection syndrome at a higher level than anybody else, which is detrimental because now, because of smartphones, everybody has ADHD, which means everybody's dealing with rejection syndrome. And dealing with that, it's, it's, it's detrimental to our walk with Jesus it's detrimental to our lives. It's even causing suicide at tremendous rates. We're all concerned with coronavirus, and maybe rejection is the greatest threat to our lives. It's, it's detrimental. And so for some of you, you've been rejected by ex-spouses that told you they don't love you anymore, they love somebody else. That hurts. For some of you, it was, a, it was you had a job, your dream job, and you got fired. It was rejection and failure. For some of you, it's your kids. You work your entire life raising them up, and they become an 18-year-old, and they reject you and say, I don't need you anymore. Rejection happens over and over and again. And for this generation, which is a fatherless generation, rejection hits even harder. Where fathers choose to live outside of the house of their kids. The kids don't see it as mommy and daddy couldn't get along. They look at it as daddy chose another family rather than me and they feel rejected. For some, it's they have no male figure in their life, so they feel rejected by all men. Or some fathers are bad fathers and they abuse or mistreat their kids, so now they have rejection from that father and it breaks down their life to become a life of rejection. But the good news is God has a cure for rejection. God has a cure. When you felt rejected by every single person you've ever cared about, when you've been rejected over and over and over again, God has a cure. And in his word it shows, if you would stand to your feet as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 together. It says this. It says, but you are a chosen race. Touch your neighbor and say Chosen. Chosen. That means somebody wants you. They picked you. They selected you. They, they wanted you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Skip up to verse 4. So the reason Peter's having this discussion with this church this church was being rejected by everybody. They were no longer Jewish, so they were rejected by Jewish people. They were no longer worldly or secular or Gentiles because they're following Jesus, so they can't shop in the marketplace because nobody wants to talk to them. Nobody wants to receive their money. And you know you're rejected when people don't want your money. Their families disown them, and they find themselves all alone. That's why Peter's writing this letter, because they feel rejected and all alone. In verse 4, he says this, though. As you come to him as a living stone, rejected by men. I don't know about you, but I've faced some rejection by men in my day. I've faced some rejection by women in my day. I've faced some rejection by coaches and teachers and mentors and leaders. I've faced rejection by many people. He says, rejected by men, but, everybody say but. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He said, you may be rejected by every single person you meet, but you are chosen by God as precious. In the sight of God, you're not rejected. In the sight of God, you are chosen. And he's trying to say it in this scripture that no matter who rejects you, 
No matter who tries to tell you, no matter who has tried to tell you you're a failure, tell you you're not good enough, no matter what spouse has told you you're not lovable, no matter who's told you that you are a failure, that you're a drunk, that you're an addict, that you'll never make it something. Somebody after first service said, when they chose to marry their husband, they dropped out of school, their teacher told them, congratulations, you'll never amount to anything in your life. And they made it into the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. See, people will tell you you're rejected based on what you do. God says you're chosen because of him. Being chosen by God is a cure. Father, we thank you that you're a God that still chooses. And we find ourselves all alone due to the rejection of men and the rejection of women, broken at the heart, full of stress and anxiety and fear. We know that there's a God who looks at us despite our failures and still chooses us. And I pray in this room, Holy Spirit, that you awaken every mind, every spirit, every heart in this room to the reality that they are not identified by their rejection. They are identified by who chose them. Father, rock their world, awaken their souls, and let them dream again in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So Peter is talking to this church. Hey, you may be rejected by men, but guess what? You are chosen by God and for God. You get that? You are chosen by God. You are chosen for God wanted you. When everyone else said they didn't want you, God steps up and says, I want him. When everybody else says, I don't like him, I don't love him, God steps up and says, I love him. I like him. In, in, in the NFL, which I'm an NFL guy, there's a draft. So it makes it fair. In the NFL draft, every team gets a spot to pick their player. Well, there's a term for the guy who's the very last pick. So I don't know about you, but if you ever played ball on the playground, there's always the person that's the very last one standing waiting to get picked. The goal is not to be that guy. You don't have to be the first guy. Just don't be that last guy standing there. And they're saying, uh, I'll take. And you're looking around like, no one's left. Pick me. And you're that guy. In the NFL, they have a term for the guy who's the last one picked. They call it Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. Meaning he's the last person in the seventh round with the last pick. After 256 picks, he got passed over 255 times. Rejected 255 times. 31 teams had passed over him six times in a row. In three days, he'd been rejected 255 times. I don't know about you, that's a tough week. It's like a job interview. You're waiting to get the job. They pick 255 people in front of you. And so they call him Mr. Irrelevant because they think that this guy's never going to make it to anything. Well, there's been people that were the last pick that were Mr. Irrelevant. Ryan Suckup, who was the kicker for the Titans and the Chiefs, who now has a Super Bowl ring, was the last pick. And he played in the NFL for 10 years. And guess what he got? He got to be on the team. He got a Super Bowl ring. And he got a paycheck. You can call me whatever you want to call me. If you want to sign that NFL check, I'll be Mr. Irrelevant all day long. Last pick, rejected. But you know what is interesting? When he stands up there on the podium and he's the last pick and they're giving him the jersey, they don't give him the jersey from the 31 teams that overlooked him. They don't give him the team. See, He's not identified by all the rejection. They give him the jersey of the team who chose him and wanted him. And when you catch a hold of this, that you are not identified by the people who overlooked you or rejected you. You are not identified by the people who said you would not make it. You are not identified by the people that said you were not good enough. You are not identified by the people who said you were not lovable. You are not identified by the people that said you weren't look good looking enough. You are not identified by the people that said you're not gifted enough. You are not identified by the spouse who walked out on you. You are not identified by the father who did not love you. You are not identified by the father who rejected you. You're not identified by the mother who was not there for you. You are not rejected by the family that disowned you. You are not rejected. You do not wear the jersey of those who rejected you. You wear the jersey of him who chose you. You wear the jersey. You are identified not by your rejection, but by who chose you. And I'll tell you this, he who chose you is more than good enough to be identified by. So why why you keep identifying yourself with all your failures? Why do you keep identifying yourself by all your mistakes and all the pain and all the frustration, all the rejection, all the failures? 
Like, why as people do we tend to lean into our rejection and not to lean into our acceptance? And all God wants, he chooses us, but he longs and desires for us to choose him back. Like, he longs for people who will choose him in return. You say with Israel, he chose Israel in the Old Testament. He chose them. He wanted them. He loved them. He desired them. He said, you are my people. Not because they did anything good. He wanted them. And all he asked was, I redeemed you. I've delivered you. I love you. I want you. Just choose me back. And they couldn't do it. They chose to worship other gods. They chose to go different directions. And we do the same thing. We have this God who says, I pick you, mystery relevant, I want you on my team, but you're still looking around wanting to play for all the teams that rejected you. You're giving your attention to the people who told you you're not good enough instead of giving your attention to the God who says you are. We're giving our attention to those who've betrayed us and hurt us and offended us rather than giving our attention to the one who says, I want you, I love you, I don't care what happened. See, we're, as people, we're designed to lean in towards our rejection. But God says, I want you to step into being chosen. Because rejection is part of life. And God chooses us even when other people overlook you. Even when other people reject you. Even when other people don't want you, God says, I want them. And it's a fact of life. Rejection is common. Touch your neighbor and say rejection is common. Like if we pulled this room, I promise you, everyone in this room has faced rejection. Some more than others. Just ask an Auburn fan. They'll tell you. Rejection is common. Like, even if you read the Bible, like a part of our Bible reading plan, reading the Bible in a year through the Bible in One Year app, you'll see God was rejected. As soon as he created Adam and Eve, he said, I just want you as my own. Don't eat of this tree. Adam rejected God to eat the tree that he wanted to eat of. Moses rejected David, rejected by his family, overlooked while they're looking for a new king. David's out working. They said, oh, he's just out there. We don't need to talk to him. Joseph, rejected by his brothers. Jesus, rejected by the disciples, rejected by men. He was God in the flesh. You cannot escape rejection on earth. Like, it's impossible. And rejection happens. I faced rejection, my mom, my whole entire life was a lifestyle of rejection, even so much so a couple years ago. <laughs> we were eating dinner as a family, and my mom called us. So I tried to honor my mom and answer the phone when she calls. So we're trying to eat dinner. The kids are a little bit younger. I answer the phone. I go out of the room, talk to my mom. She's just boo-hooing, crying, like, <laughs> you know, like snotty crying. So my mom's a little dramatic. So I'm like, I'm like is everything okay? <laughs> yes. I just <laughs> watched this movie, Precious, which is not a good movie to watch. So don't go watch the movie Precious. But the movie Precious is a young, heavyset African-American girl, sleeps around, gets pregnant, and gives up her baby at a very young age, basically to sell her baby. So I was crying. She's kind of, just watch the movie Precious. I said, cool. Was it a good movie? And I just need to tell you something. Right? So I'm trying to eat dinner with the family, trying to honor a mom. And she says, when, when I was pregnant with you, she's like, I was going to sell you to my mom's neighbors. And I was like, what? How do we go from a movie to you're trying to sell me? That's illegal. And she says, and, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, what'd you say? She said, well, when I was pregnant with you, like, you know, you were a mistake. And I'm like, I can tell now. Like, she said, and I was going to sell you to my mom, to my grandmother's neighbors. They couldn't have kids. And she's going to sell me for 500 bucks to the neighbors. It's like your Labrador retriever had puppies and you're looking for somebody to take them over. And I said, she's like, can I just need to tell you I'm so sorry. And I was like, Mom, look, you didn't do it. Like, you didn't sell me. It's cool. Like, we're good. I love you. Hung up the phone. Going there to eat dinner with Toya and the kids. She said, who was that? I said, it was my mom. She's like, what she want? I said, that would be later on. She said, no, what she wanted. I said, well, she wanted to tell me that she was going to sell me when she was pregnant but she didn't. And Toy's like, what? I said, for 500 bucks. I said, I think I'll give her $500 now to sell me to myself. Like, that just shows you a glimpse into rejection. We've all 
face rejection to some level. And usually rejection comes from the people we want to please the most. From a spouse that we're trying to love and trying to honor and trying to please. A mom or a dad that's never there and you're trying to please them and honor them and earn their love and they keep rejecting you over and over and over again. And what happens is we take that rejection and we personify it and we start owning that rejection as our identity. And we start believing that rejection by some means rejection by all. It means if I've had rejection in my life, everybody must feel the same way. If, if my mom didn't love me, my dad didn't love me, how can anybody else love me? If my ex-spouse didn't love me, if they left me, then how can somebody else love me? And you start dealing with this, and you start personifying this rejection as your identity, and you start projecting it onto everybody else. And I'm here to tell you, rejection by some does not mean rejection by all. Many times God will use rejection as a way of protecting us from becoming somebody he doesn't want us to become. I mean, he sees our potential. He sees who we could become. He knows our redeemable qualities inside of us. And he'll allow for us to be rejected to protect us from becoming like the people we're trying to be approved by. See, see God knows what it feels like to be rejected. So, see, he understands the pain of it. But he also understands it can be a tool in his hand to prevent you from becoming somebody he doesn't want you to become. He'll use it to protect you from yourself. I don't know about you, but there was girls that I, I dated in high school and even after high school that I thought, God, this is the one. Actually, every one I dated I thought was the one. God, this is the one. God, if you just let me have this girl, like I'll serve you the rest of my life. We all lie to God all the time. And, and went through it. And there were some that I, 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 I tried. It didn't work out. They rejected me. Looking back, that was God's blessing. Because if I would not have been rejected, I wouldn't have my wife that I have today. And some of y'all know that's a fact because you were trying to hook up with old Susie Q in high school and you thought if this is the one, if I could just have her and she rejected you over and over and over again, and if God would have allowed you to have Susie Q, your life would be in the, on the toilet on that jet blue flight going to Haiti. Because you've seen, she's been married three, four, five times. You see it on Facebook. And every time she divorces, she takes a whole lot of money with her. See, God will protect you through rejection. And when you realize that many times God's rejection, or man's rejection is God's protection, it'll change the way. Because see, God, just because someone else rejects you doesn't mean God rejects you. And rejection does not mean you're not valuable or you're not worthy. What it means is the people that rejected you had the inability to see the value inside of you. Because as they're looking at you, they're looking at you through all of their insecurities, all their failures, all their mistakes, all their fears, and now they're looking at you through all their junk. And so when they're trying to look for something good for, through you or in you, all they can see is their insecurities. Meaning, if they find something good in you, it exposes what's bad in them. And most people are too selfish to grant value that they don't have themselves. See, and the good news is, God doesn't have any insecurities. God doesn't have any failures. God doesn't have a low self-esteem. So God doesn't look at us through this lens of brokenness or insecurity or fear or, or lack of self-confidence or self-image. God's self-image is perfect. God is completely secure in who he is. So when he looks at us, he doesn't look at us through broken lenses. Therefore, he can see the value inside of every single person. He can see what is worthy inside of you. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see you for your rejection. He sees you for what he loves in you. And it changes everything. See, because God's choosing of us is the cure for rejection. And God chooses us, not because he needs us. Listen to this. Not because he needs us, because he wants us. God doesn't need any of us. God doesn't need any more musicians in heaven. God doesn't need any more preachers on earth. God, God wants us. He does not need us. And he chooses to love us, not because we did anything good, but because he is good about everything. He is so good. He looks at us in our brokenness. He doesn't need us. He doesn't look down and say, you know what, they're really good. The Israelites, oh, they're awesome. They're, they're good people. No, he's saying, I am so good 
that I choose people who aren't. I am so good. I'm so full of love. I'll choose people who are unlovable because my love overcomes that brokenness. And love, true love always chooses. See, on Valentine's Day, when you have a Valentine, you choose to love somebody. You receive love, and God is love. Therefore, God chooses people to pour his love into and to pour his love out into. And the basis for his love being received is not us, it's him. Like God is so gracious and so loving that he chooses us not based on us, but based on him. He was said in the scripture, men will reject you, but I love you. And here's what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus saying, listen, you didn't choose me. See, because we would probably not choose God. And this is why. When you've been dealt with rejection your entire life by people that you wanted to please and you wanted to honor because you didn't meet their expectations or you didn't meet their standards, and you keep feeling that your entire life, anybody with any reasoning or logic would never say, I should pursue and choose God. Because you'll be afraid of being rejected because you know his standard is so much higher. And so that fear will prevent you from choosing him or pursuing him. And so Jesus just clears the room. He says, listen, you didn't choose me. You didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to go give my life to Jesus. You know, I'm going to wake up today and I'm just going to go and give my life to God. You know, I'm going to just wake up and just quit doing what I've been doing and just go live for God. No, Jesus, I chose you. And it's pivotal because there is no rejection in that. There is no shame in that. There is no guilt in that. And he chose you because he wanted you. He chose you because he loves you. And this choosing is what the Bible calls the doctrine of election. And it is a biblical doctrine that almost every single theology confirms. It is a doctrine that is of the Bible that says this, that though man may reject you, God chooses you. And we know that God chooses us. We know that God is in control in choosing to show his love to us because two things. One, we know that we thank God for his salvation. No one wakes up and says, God, I want to thank myself for my salvation. I am very merciful to myself. I am very gracious to myself. I did so many good works. I am so appreciative of how good I did to earn my salvation. No one says that. That's why we sing amazing grace. That's why we sing songs about God's grace. We thank God for our salvation because we didn't save ourselves. We also pray for other people to be saved. Why? We know that God has some control in people being saved. We know that he has a choice in choosing people towards salvation. So those two things, we know that salvation is of God and chosen by God or the doctrine of election. This is what it means in theology terms. The doctrine of election means God chooses to bring individuals to salvation through faith in Christ. Meaning God chooses people. Touch your neighbor and say, he chooses you. He chooses you. Now, the problem with this is we see this with Israel. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they were the smallest of any tribe, any clan, any nation. They were failures over and over and over again. If we want to just start with Abraham. Abraham was a failure over and over and over again. He lied. He cheated. Jacob lied and cheated. They all were messed up. And God says, yet I choose you. He selected them. And he says, I want you to worship and choose me. So we know there's a choosing, and there's two ways of seeing this doctrine of election. And I want to go deep. So can I go a little bit deeper today? Okay, like one of you. The rest of you are like, Chick-fil-A is closed, but Newburn's may be open. Like, like this is pivotal because this is the cure for your rejection. That when you're dealing with rejection, you can come back to this doctrine. It's, it's a doctrine that is, it's a life changer for you. There's two, and one of them is called unconditional election. The other one's called conditional election. Unconditional election is a doctrine of Calvinism, meaning John Calvin, Reformed people, Presbyterians, Calvinists. You usually find Calvinists sitting at a coffee shop or a local bar drinking draft beer and smoking cigars arguing about theology. That's what Calvinists are. Here's what they said. Unconditional election is, says that God in eternity past chose or elected certain people from, from the fallen race 
of men to salvation. Meaning, before the world ever began, God selected some people to be saved. He decreed, I want these people saved, which then in turn means I want these people not to be saved. They'll use scriptures from Romans 9 to say that you know, God chooses some people to display his glory, some to display his wrath. They'll use scriptures, but they're really trying to do is protect the sovereignty of God. As believers, we all believe God is on the throne. We believe he has control of creation. We believe he's powerful. We believe he's all-knowing. We believe God is sovereign, that God is going to fulfill his plan from the beginning to the end. We know that God has a plan that's unraveling. That's why we believe in prophecy. And so this unconditional election is really designed to protect God is sovereign. If anything happens, it's because God willed it to be. The problem with that is it removes any responsibility for man for any of the problems in the world. And so this unconditional election operates off cause and effect, meaning if there's an effect, there's a cause, and God is always the cause. That means all the evil in the world is God's fault. That means any brokenness is our fault. And it releases man from responsibility for his decision and his consequences. One of the issues with this, if you read the Bible, and when you read the Bible, you'll see that God is sovereign and God has a plan that's unfolding in the Bible. The other problem with it is this, that I can't blame God for all of my problems. I can't wake up and, you know, go out and get on a drunken binge and sleep around and cheat on Toya and go through our money and wake up. Toya, it's not my fault. It's God's will for that to happen. Like, God planned it way before you were ever here. Like, it's God's will. Like, this is just what's going to happen. When you break down the basics of this doctrine of, of, of unconditional election, that's what it comes down to that God is the cause of all things. I lean towards the doctrine of unconditional election, which is the Arminian standpoint, and this is what it says. It says this, or conditional election. It says, conditional election is a theological belief that God chose who would be saved based on the foreknowledge of who uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning, it's conditional. God chooses you, but it's conditioned on you having faith to receive him. You'll see this in Scripture. This is the part of, this focuses on man's free will or responsibility. So you have sovereignty of God and man's free will. If you read the Bible, you're going to see both every single page. You'll see God declaring something, and you'll see man, man responsible for the consequences. Repent and believe. If you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, I'm not going to do this. You'll see these consequences throughout. They're both there. But this is what 1 Peter 1 verse 2 says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, elect, touch your neighbor and say elect. So there's God's sovereignty. The dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. Touch your other neighbor and say foreknowledge. So God knows what's going to happen. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. So he knows, but he also chooses at the same time. But then it gets a little bit deeper. He says, of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for what obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Meaning, he's choosing, based on his foreknowledge, those who will obey what Christ actually says. So both of these are coming together where God is sovereign, but man has responsibility to respond to God's sovereign. See, where uh, unconditional election says God is sovereign, whatever happens is his fault. That's cause and effect. This one looks at God as a person, not just a king, dictator sitting on a throne. And we know that as a person, like in any relationship, in any relationship, it does not operate off cause and effect. You cannot command and control your wife. You can, but you may wake up with a horse head in the bed with you. You may end up with some poison in your dinner. Relationships don't work off command and control. If they do, they get broken. We know relationships operate off influence and response. I mean, I'm going to try to do something to influence you, hoping for a certain response. I'm going to try to woo you and love you, hoping you'll respond in love back to me. God is a person. We are a person. God operates off influence and response. He doesn't make you get saved. He tries to woo you with his mercy. He tries to woo you and earn your, your response through his grace and through his goodness and through his love and through his word to draw you to himself hoping that you will respond back in love. But he loves you even if you don't respond back. 
Could you imagine that? Somebody who loves you even if you don't love them in return. So God gives the grace. We provide the faith, the repentance. So God loves us. That's the, the grace. That's the election. And grace is nothing more than this. The initial and sustaining effort and influence of God for your salvation. Meaning God starts with grace, but he tries to earn you and woo you, but then you're sustained by grace or his love or his favor in your life. But the response is on our part. So God provides the grace, we provide the response. And what happens is when man gets involved and they start building theologies, we have to start thinking we fit in the box and say, well, God is like this. And here's the thing I've learned about God. God will never conform to your box. He'll never conform. God is wrathful. Like we know in the Bible, God has wrath, but he's also merciful. God is just, I meaning he believes in justice, but he's also very gracious. God is all these tensions, that, that these characteristics, and we like to say, well, well God is this. No, no, God is both. God is, and and theology-wise, you need to understand both because you need to understand God chooses you, but you have a responsibility to choose him back. I've dealt with this my entire saved life where people trying to say, well, you this or you that? And I just, I'm both. Well, you can't be both. Well, I read a, a story where the, there's these two, two groups together and they're fighting over, is God sovereign or is man free? And so they argue, no, he's sovereign. No, he, we're free. No, we get to choose. No, he chooses. And they're arguing back and forth. And like all church people, if they can't agree, they just split off and create two churches. We call them denominations and we call them glorious. They argue, they fight. So this one guy's in between. He says, I don't know if God is sovereign or if I have free will. So he ends up choosing to go to the sovereign group or God chooses group. We'll call them the Presbyterians. He goes to the Presbyterians. They said, Who's, who sent you here? He said, well, no one sent me here. I just decided to come to this group. They said, whoa, whoa, decide. no, you don't get to decide. God chooses. He is sovereign. You have to go to the other group. So the man's rejected. He leaves there and he goes to the other group, walks in. Hey, brother, how are you doing? I'm good. They said, when did you decide to come here? He said, I didn't decide. The other group sent me. Whoa, no, God doesn't. No, we have free will. God doesn't send anybody. And he's stuck in the middle, arguing between the two. And Charles Spurgeon, who is a Reformed theologian, said it this way. They asked him, but how do you discern between God's sovereignty and man's free will? He says, why would I try to bring the two together? They're not enemies. He said, you don't have to reconcile friends together. He said, they both work together to accomplish God's great purposes. Another theologian said, they're the two pillars that reach from earth all the way to heaven, that we never see where they intercept, but as we look up, we gaze upon the goodness of God by looking at both. That is who God is. He chooses us, hoping we will respond to him. The choosing part opens up your life to free you from rejection. The response part opens up your life to make you a son or daughter of the Most High God. Because as he chooses you, he doesn't choose you for no purpose. He chooses you to be a son, not a slave. And I need you to get this deep down in your soul. God chose you to be a son or a daughter of the king. He did not choose you to be a slave. There's enough religious junk and enough denominations who push slavery through the Bible in a contemporary context, and there's not enough people preaching that God did not choose you to fall down and worship at the altar of slavery to a God who hates you. He saved you to come worship at the feet of a father who loves you. And it's a major, major difference. In Galatians chapter 4, it says it this way. It says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Meaning, when you're a son and you don't know you're a son, you're still operating like a slave, even though you have access to everything the father has. Meaning, some of you are in this room and you're sons of God. And you have access to everything the father has. To freedom, to healing, to grace, to mercy, to purpose, to dreams, to spiritual gifts. And you have no clue because you still operate as a slave. But he is under guardian and managed to the date set by his father. In the same way, we also were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Meaning, 
not born into the family, but chosen to be part of the family. And because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, the problem with adoption is we look at adoption through the lens of our context. And for the most part, when people adopt a child, like I got a friend I grew up from high school with, they've adopted 10 children from five different nations. When they adopt a child, it's usually a baby. And babies don't have a past. They don't have any bondage. They don't have a history. They're, they're pure. They're innocent babies. And many times we think of adoption like that. Well, oh, God you know, loves little babies. He adopted us as babies. But it's different. See, it's easy to love a baby. It's harder to love a 19-year-old boy who stinks and is nasty. Me and Toya go back and forth. She, our dog keeps digging out of our yard into the neighbor's yard. And so Toya's solution was, we'll just get another dog for her to play with so that way she won't do that. We'll get a puppy. I said, that's how we got this one. You like them when they're small little puppies. They're cute. But then they turn into the problem we have now. Why do we have, it, have another problem? Same thing, baby. She's like, babe, we could adopt a little Haitian baby. I said, that sounds great. But then they turn into these four teenagers at our house. Like, it gets chaotic. So she has this baby mentality. And if you notice, everything in nature as a baby is cute. Baby lions are cute. Baby puppies are cute. Baby cats are cute. Baby sharks are cute. All babies in nature are cute. You know why? That's the only way God can make the parents love the baby. If the baby came out looking like a 25-year-old balding man, you wouldn't love it. So it makes it cute. They go, oh, we love it. Then you take it. Then you're stuck with it. So we think of adoption like that. God looks at, oh, it's a cute little baby person. Like they're broken. Oh, they don't have a father. I will adopt them. And then you think he's stuck with you with all your junk. Adoption in the context of the first century was, had nothing to do with babies. It had to do with a, a landlord or a business owner or a leader who was affluent who didn't have an heir to his kingdom. And so he was desperately, desperately looking for somebody to give everything he had to, looking to give his land to, his money to, his inheritance to, trying to make them the heir to everything he owned or possessed. And so sometimes it would happen so quickly that they'd be walking through the marketplace and see somebody, a young man, usually 15 to 25 years old, and he would just stop and say, hey, you, I want to make you my son. What's crazy about that is one, when they legally did it, it wiped away all the debt of the person who's being adopted. And then he legally had access to everything that person had. And what's crazy is when he said, I'm going to adopt you, he's not adopting an innocent little baby. He's adopting a full-grown man that has bondage, that has mistakes, that has failures, that has rejection, that has problems, that probably has an attitude. He's choosing to adopt somebody for the sole purpose of giving them his promise. Do you realize when God chooses to adopt you, he's not adopting you as a pure, innocent little baby. He's adopting you as a broken person, full of rejection, full of fear, full of shame, full of guilt. And he's not adopting you to be a slave in the house. See, one of the things in Haiti that, that is sickening is there's many kids, they're called Restavex, and Restavex are children that didn't have parents that could feed them or take care of them, and their parents will literally sell them to another family that will adopt them. But when they adopt them, now they have a roof over their head, which is good. They have food to eat, which is good. And they have to provide them an education, which is good. But what the problem is, as rest of X may have some of the access of the kids, they don't get to eat at the table with the family. They work as servants or slaves in the house to earn what the parents provide for them. And see, many of you in this room, you think God adopted you to be a restivec. You're just happy to be in the house, but you're still eating the scraps from the table. You're getting a little bit of the benefit, but you're not worshiping as a son. In this scripture, it says you can, you can be a slave while you're a child, meaning you can have the, child, the heart of a child, but the mind of a slave. And see, a slave obeys out of fear. But a son obeys out of love. Meaning, I'm not going to obey God because I'm afraid of what he may do to me. I'm going to obey God because all he's done for me. Like a slave has no hope. He has no promise. But a son has access to an entire inheritance of the father. 
See, some of you, you could tell that you have the mind of a slave because you only obey God when you're afraid of the consequences. Some of you worship out of fear, meaning you only respond when you're afraid something bad may happen. You only pray when something bad is about to happen. But if you're a son, you obey. You worship because you know you are chosen by God. Some of you have no hope for a future. You're full of anxiety and stress and fear and worry. You know what that means? You have the mind of a slave. You know, I may deal with worry every once in a while, but I'm not a person of worry. I don't deal with anxiety. I don't deal with stress because I know my father is the king. Like there's nothing. Money, he has. If I need healing, he has it. He can protect my kids. There's nothing I'm concerned about because I am a son of the Most High God. And you see this in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, he has a father who loved him, who cared about him, who, who wanted him, who desired him. And the prodigal son takes his inheritance and he runs off and he squanders it away. He's drinking. He's sleeping around. He's lost everything he had. He's in the pigsty, eating out of the pigsty. I'm sure people in the town were talking. I'm sure like good Southern Belt church people, they, were, they weren't gossiping. It's, we got to pray for old prodigal, prodigal son. You know, he's had a rough, he's had a rough day. Let's pray for him, which really is gossip translated into prayer. I can't believe he would leave the father's house to have this and do this. I can't believe. And he finds himself and he says, you know, if I could just go back home to my father's house, my servants ate better than this in my father's house. So he was willing to go back to the house to be a slave instead of a son. And he gets up to leave, and I'm sure everybody around him identified him by his failures. They identified him by his rejection. They identified him by his mistakes. They identified him by his sin. They identified him by his addictions. They identified him by where he messed up and who rejected him. And he starts walking home. And here's the cool part. The father, every single day, would step up as a son to come up and look and think, is this the day he comes home? He'd get up and look, maybe not today. Next day, he'd get up, maybe today, maybe not today. Maybe today. And you see, I think what we miss, the son was looking to just become a servant. But the father was not looking for a servant. The father was looking for a son. They were looking for two different things. And so the father's not getting up early to go out and look for a slave. He had plenty of servants. He had plenty of slaves. He had plenty of workers. He didn't need another servant. He needed his son back. And so the calling of God, the choosing of God, is not about him needing more people to work, more people to do this, more people to worship. God doesn't need that. He has a whole plethora of people in heaven doing the work of heaven. He is looking for sons and daughters he can love. And he gets up every day and looks out and says, it's today, today. He's looking for a son. He's not looking for servants. And when he came home, the son just wanted to be a servant. The son is coming identified by his rejection, identified by his failures, identified by his shame. And the first thing the father does is wrap him up in a royal robe to let him know. It's almost like that Mr. Irrelevant jersey. You're not identified by all those who overlooked you. You're not identified by the brokenness. You're not identified by your failures. You're not identified by your past. I want you to know you are not a servant in this house. You are a son. You are not identified by those who rejected you. You are identified by him who chose you. And he calls you chosen. He calls you chosen. I am chosen. And all God asks is for you to choose him in return. All he asks you to do is respond to the grace of God. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. If I can have the altar team and prayer team come forward, we got a little bit of time today, and we're going to go back into one song. And I think one of the major things that needs to happen is we have to move from an identity in rejection to an identity in acceptance. And I can actually trace down the root of a majority of people's problems in their life to a place of rejection. Many of you, and I, I said this in first service, I'm going to say it again because it is for somebody in this room. Men, many of you deal with addiction, 
to pornography and lust, not out of sexual perversion, but out of rejection by women in your life, by rejection from mothers in your life that did not approve of you. And it caused a root seed where now you find your identity in that rejection and you make up for it in control through pornography. Some of you ladies in this room, you are looking for a father to love you unconditionally and you found yourself being rejected by a father who was never around and now you're searching for it from relationship to relationship to relationship. And the cure is not going to be another relationship. The cure is not going to be for pornography just to burn it all up and throw it all away. The cure is to remove your identity from rejection and find it in being chosen. And my prayer this morning is the Holy Spirit will do a work in your heart to flood your heart with the acceptance and the affirmation and the approval and the love of a God who's been pursuing you and chasing you and choosing you since before you were even born. And for some of you in this room, maybe today is the first day you you finally stop and respond through faith and repentance to the grace of God that's been shown on your life. That God is working in you. God is trying to awaken you to his love. But it's not enough just to be awakened. You have to choose to respond. And if that's you, I'm not going to have you come forward, but every head, every eyes closed. If that's you right now, I just want you to slip your hand up right where you are. That you say, you know, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Put your hands down. In a minute, I'm going to open the altars up. And this is what we're praying for. There's many of you in this room that the rejection you faced in life is keeping you as a slave rather than living as a son. And our altar team is going to pray over you. They're going to speak God's word into you. They're going to speak life into you. And I'm praying that it begins a move of the Spirit in your life to wash out areas that have been sitting dormant due to rejection for years. And for those of you that raise your hand, I'm asking you to come down and let them, let them pray for you and agree with you that today is a new day for you, a new creation in Christ, that you're no longer rejected by men. You're now approved and chosen by God. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace in this place. And Father, we thank you that you call us chosen, that though men may reject us, men may betray us, men may overlook us, you still choose to choose us. So Father, we thank you for our love so deep, a grace so powerful that you still draw us to you. So Father, I pray for a response of faith in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand to your feet all over the room. Like I said, we're going to go into worship. This song is Reckless love song. We've done it a couple times before. And it's talking about that love that God chooses you even when you're not choosing him back. That his love wants you. His love desires you. His love pursues you. And it's looking for a response to choose him back. And so we're going to open up the altars. If you need prayer for anything we just talked about, if you need prayer for agreement, anything else during this one song, we're going to agree together in prayer in Jesus' name.